0: welcome to rector's Covered, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith we ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion we're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation so to place ourselves in terms of time like cultural moments uh, this week we're in canada in we Vancouver. are, yes. Hi, Alison. Hi, Ken.
1: Hi, Todd. Hi, Todd. Um,
0: hi, we're, uh <laughs> And uh, this week in Canadian news, there's a delegation of Indigenous survivors and leaders who are at the Vatican. Yes. Yeah. They're there all week. And they have met with the Pope mm-hmm. already. They're meeting with the Pope again tomorrow. And then there's a further kind of meeting or gathering on Friday stemming from this. And the idea is, the hope is, that the Pope is going to come to Canada at some point and issue on Canadian soil an apology for the residential schools and such. One of the things that's interesting to me in the stories, and I'm sure you guys have seen them and followed them, is yesterday, so I I think it's yesterday, the delegation of Indigenous uh, survivors and leaders went to the museum at the Vatican. I have not been there. Um, But in that museum, there are a number of artifacts and, um, you know, gloves, uh, uh, pipe that apparently is super important and not supposed to be displayed, Um, uh, kayak, uh, all kinds of things from... Who
1: would have thought that the Vatican might have kept, you know, problematic artifacts? Well, and now they're asking for them back. I feel like that...
0: Have you followed this? Yeah, a little bit. So, and the, so far, the Vatican has not commented much. There's been some response, you know, from various circles, I don't know that it's official, uh, that they've said, well, these were given as gifts. And so it's not really ours to, to give them back. I heard one um, survivor who had been part of the residential school system and, and suffered abuse, um, who said, well, we know one thing about this institution. Um, they steal," he said. "They stole my life, to I think he said like soul or spirit or something. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to start with that default assumption, right? That they, I don't know if that's true or proper, but that was compelling and interesting. And
2: and the church isn't the only, whether it's the Catholic Church or others. I mean, there's there's stolen art. People who have power steal art artifacts beautiful things yeah from i've been to the british
0: museum other, yeah. you've been to the british museum yeah i mean it's it's not british
1: yeah. <laughs> Most no of it so is. well and there's been a lot of surprising. calls from from several different cultures for having you know artifacts returned to them um i also go there there is there's is part that that i have a thought that i'm like could could the vatican not return these things almost as like in some way a gesture of Goodwill. It's not like the Vatican doesn't have enough stuff. Like the well, institution yeah, historically we'll is just like over. Well, that was one thing. Uh,
0: one of the things that I've been impressed about is the the young leaders. Mm-hmm. There's two young leaders, a young woman and a young man. I think they're both in their late 20s or something, or they. And they were interviewed, and um, and they in, in the young the young man was saying that when they first uh, went to meet with the Pope. Uh, it was in whatever palace where they meet world leaders and such. And he said the opulence of the place. And he wasn't like hacking or he's like, but he's, this is not the kind of thing with which I am familiar. And it was no. um, it was something talking about what they were talking about in that place. But they did say that Pope Francis was amazingly present for them. One, one survivor said this was the best day of my life. Mm-hmm. He he heard us. He was emotionally engaged. All these kinds of things. Yeah. So here's why I bring and it up. Okay, well, I was go just ahead. gonna
2: say I hope too that to me an apology is nice, but I think there also has has to be an admission with that apology of and we were wrong. Like it's not just I'm sorry yeah. for yeah. what we did. I'm sorry you got hurt. I'm sorry. I'm or sorry. even I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what we did. Uh, but right. but to be able to say we can now look back on it and say it was wrong. Like to to try to force a culture or religion on you, to force you into this, to abuse you, to allow this, and to align ourselves with government, which had a different agenda, uh, we we're, we were wrong in that. And so I, I I do hope it goes beyond sorry to an admission of it's an, we were wrong. It's
0: an interesting question. Um, we a, a friend of the podcast, David Goa, um, Orthodox theologian and uh, did a little Zoom lecture last week. Allison and I were there mm-hmm. and speaking about the Russian Orthodox Church and their alignment with power. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the question time, uh, I, I'm still struck by this because he was, you know, Orthodox faith. David himself is part of the Orthodox faith. And this has been very, very difficult for, th- for that church because the Russian Orthodox Church, which is quite powerful, has completely aligned and backed. Yeah. Uh, putin and in the question time Goa in his in his particular uh, way with you know kind of beautiful and 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 striking words that he uses and he was talking about the church as a whole not just the russian orthodox church or the catholic church he said well the the problem is he says the antichrist so what do you mean and he 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 filled that in he said "Uh, the antichrist is taking death from life instead of life moving you know from sorry taking yeah taking death from life you start with life and get to death that's antichrist instead of death to life and he said the antichrist nests in the church um, and so aligning with what you're saying is that the way to say you know this was wrong or we were wrong is kind of identifying evil that's right right yeah. with the so two clips that we had in in the uh, you know in this intro here one is from Plymouth Brethren Church, a story on the Plymouth Brethren Church, and one is from probably the most well-known, at least around here, that we, of all this stuff we've talked about, maybe accepting the Catholic Church, from Hillsong Church. Mm-hmm. In a series of reports and in an upcoming documentary, City News is taking a look at an exclusive Christian sect, one you might not have heard about but certainly has a presence here in Canada, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Former members are speaking out about their experience.
1: When we talk about Carl and purity, how could you shame me when I was so young, but you did this? It was the most toxic thing I ever had to deal with. Uh, hey, girl.
3: Hi. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. The beliefs that they put in you go deep. They really get in your head.
2: This is cool, church.
3: There is a fine line between cult and culture. They want to spread their tentacles as far as they can. They really do believe that they need to conquer Earth in order to make heaven on Earth.
0: And so you've heard about these, these two documentaries that are out? Yeah. Uh, yes. I know Alison and I have seen some of the Hillsong one. Mm-hmm. I have also seen the one on the exclusive brethren. It's interesting because in the news story, there's a little bit of inaccuracy. Like They're like, learn about this um, exclusive exclusive religious Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren, where I was part of a Plymouth Brethren church for years, and what happened with the Plymouth Brethren is they divided, and there was one group that called the Exclusive, and they were very closed, and then another group called the Open. (laughs) They were not entirely open, but they were definitely more More open open than than the the Exclusives, exclusives. right? (laughs) Um, But both of these things, where does power lie? Mm -hmm. And what happens... You know when when power is associated with a small small group of people yeah um, so any reflection on the ads you've seen so far or what you've
1: well I mean I think it's interesting because in one sense you end up with some of the same kinds of, of damage and some of the same kinds of um, pain in in both brethren and or the exclusive brethren and uh, and the Hillsong Church but they take they come at it from different angles mm-hmm. because exclusive brethren, from from what I understand is, like there, there wasn't an idea of let's be big, let's convert, let's let's make kind of this big thing that we're gonna yeah, be part of. There's only 50,000 people just about worldwide like It today. was, it was yeah. more about like stringent morality, stringent like growth in that sense. And rejection
0: of the outside world. Which yeah, and
1: Hillsong was the opposite of that. It was all about kingdom building. It was wanting to be um, the biggest, the best in, in what I think is a twisted understanding of theology that you get like a dominion theology of, you know, taking over to build a kingdom on earth for God. But I think both, both approaches end up in a really damaging way Mm. and, and end up causing a lot of religious trauma. Um, and, and both the, I, both of the documentaries identify that. They do. And so I go, well, different approaches, unfortunately, some of the same trauma and, I think it's, it's when you align power, whether that be either in, in the case of Hillsong in alignment with, with things like celebrity, um, and wealth and those sorts of things, or in the brethren, the exclusive brethren church, where you have this consolidation of power in this, this small group of people that get to define who God is. And
0: dominate the lives of the followers. Like these people were, were, there's this thing in the documentary called being shut up interesting we could deal with it but no what it me- meant literally was the the elders or the leaders i don't would define that okay there's a person who's a problem and so they are now and they just decide they're shut up which meant they have it's like a quarantine but this is they're in their house they can go out and get groceries or whatever but they can't associate with any from the church they can't so even a spouse or whatever they can still live in the same house but they can't really have contact. so it's kind
2: of like a timeout you do with toddlers
0: yeah, but it's extended, well, it's, it's harsh. It's then, then the shunning. next level is that they're they're cast out. And shunned. And yeah. they talk about it in this that they are they never see their family members again. Right, yeah. that this is. Sorry, but can and
2: and that? we've seen other examples of that in other churches, even here locally, that yeah. uh, have varying degrees of that. So whether it's you shun people who no longer attend the church or who question the authority of the church, or y- the m- more morality base, you know, someone has in in the estimation of the leadership has stepped out morally and so we're gonna bring this person mm-hmm. before the congregation mm-hmm. and basically shame them and shun them. Uh, which is an interesting approach that I don't I just don't see in, in the scriptures, especially in the person of Jesus, yeah. to shame and yeah. shun. And with the what you what you see in the documentary with the Closed Brethren is almost a Pharisaic approach. Like we're we're going to try to be as pure and as holy uh, and as sanctified as we possibly can, and a handful of men will make the decision about how we define that. And then you see again a handful of people uh, controlling the message and controlling the idea of success in the gospel mm. in the Hillsong, yeah. where where and there is there's a slight difference. They're not trying to be. Uh, pharisaic necessarily in, in terms of holiness and purity but they are trying to be the the biggest and the best and the most powerful they want to be the 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 amazon of the church world they, they, they really do they yeah. like
0: and he, brian houston said that right at the start he's like this is the church that i see it's the biggest know. and it didn't feel like kind of a you know um great commission type of thing it was more like Hillsong is going to be huge yeah like,
2: and uh, and i've You know, I haven't experienced Hillsong, but I have experienced in in the denomination that I used to be a part of that attitude of we're going to get bigger and better. And the way we define our success, the, the lens through which we'll define are we doing the work of God, the work of Jesus, is do we have more people in the seats on Sunday? Do we have a bigger budget? Do we have more programs? Are we doing more, more, more? Uh, and a whole bunch of lectures at conferences about how to be bigger, Mm -hmm. how to be better, how to have more money, how to hire more staff, how to just be bigger and better. And essentially it it becomes a business model for, you know, how, how to expand your, your restaurant franchise Mm -hmm. or your whatever it is. And and that just doesn't strike me. as I think
0: it, it's so hard having you and I've both been ministers in those things. It's so hard on the ministers too. not that, you know, where there's been like abuse and damage and all that. It's yeah. the, it's the victims that we want. I had to,
2: to. I had to fill out but annual forms saying, and how many people came to came to faith this year? How many baptisms did you have? many confirmations did you have? What was your average? Time? Like pages and pages of forms of asking numbers, numbers, numbers. I have a confession to make now Um, (laughs) yeah uh there is uh, two things were 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 true one I answered this with the exception of financial numbers because I couldn't not answer those accurately um my answer year over year was always the same and for the most part it was always zero because I didn't think it was an appropriate thing to ask and so I chose not to participate by just answering zero across the board except for your financial stuff because well, that was you don't want to I mean, get if, in
0: trouble if no one is interested in what you're doing i'm not in your zero i know this was, was was not real but if if no one's interested in what you're doing and we see some churches that just you know people are not interested in going people i, I don't think we should necessarily hold that up as like those are the real ones whereas the big ones are the like they're if if you're doing something that like it should resonate with some people if you can't be a leader without followers kind of idea that in, in most cases. but this worship of growth yeah is something that yes, even and sometimes particularly pastors in smaller churches feel the, the kind of oppression of that more more than even in bigger churches because it, it's always present there. I, a board meeting after a, after a full Sunday at church would always go better than a board meeting. I literally be like okay well Sunday there were more people there it felt a little more full so so Monday night's board meeting is going to be is going to is going to feel good and the opposite would happen and it's such you know short-sighted kind of thinking um So anyway, these two documentaries are well worth watching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, I'm sure they don't get everything right. Sometimes people have that reaction of like, do you know there was a lot of good too? Well, of course, there's a lot of good in, in a lot of things, even a lot of terrible things. So that's true. But there's also, so whatever, sometimes they get it wrong. The other side of that is... Sometimes it's worse than
1: these documentaries yeah. portray.
3: Yeah.
0: Right? That we and so it's to, so look at these. And then our our interview for the yes. main episode here is kind of the opposite of this feeling.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes.
0: Land-based healing. Healing and, and, wellness. and
1: wellness. Yeah. No, we had a very lovely interview with uh, Lauren Aldred, who I uh, met through uh, some of my courses at Vancouver School of Theology. And she she was just very Mm -hmm. lovely. So easy to talk to. Um, a quick note though. Uh, we were, we did have some technical difficulties during the recording and so it is a little glitchy. You may find that it's better on a speaker than headphones. Mm. I think it's well, well, we think it's well worth listening to. Um, Indeed. indeed. Um, and I hope that we have more opportunity to, to talk with, with Lauren and to to learn from, you know, our Indigenous brothers and sisters and yep. family that have so much to teach us. It, um, it's so
0: different than what we were just being. Yes. Go out, sit, you know. <laughs> have connection. To the land, know God's presence in this place. So thank you both very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We are very grateful to be joined Today in conversation with Lauren Aldred, Lauren Aldred works as a counsellor at the College of New Caledonia, where she also teaches workshops in yoga, art, and land-based healing and wellness. Her proposal for academic courses in land-based healing and wellness have recently been improved, uh, approved Sorry, by the college. Lauren also sits on the advisory committee of the Health Arts Research Centre at University of Northern British Columbia, UNBC. Lauren is a graduate, Masters of Public and Pastoral Leadership Program at the Vancouver School of Theology, and is currently, right now, working on her doctoral dissertation in which she is studying land-based healing and wellness through St. Stephen's College. Lauren has done pulpit supply at Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Prince George for the last decade, and serves also on the affirming committee. Lauren is also self-employed, teaching workshops and offering one-to-one support. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you here today.
3: Well, thank you for asking me to come.
1: No, no, we're, we're very excited to do this. Um, I would love if you could start us off by by helping us to find some stuff, because I feel like I have some assumptions about what land-based healing and wellness is. Um, I'm not sure that, that I entirely know, though, so I would love if you could start us off by just Telling us, what is land-based healing and wellness?
3: It's a big question, <laughs> and I can probably only answer it by circling around it. Okay. And land-based healing and, and wellness starts with a reciprocal relationship with the land. So it's it's understanding that there is a give and take there. Uh. Uh, it, it's understanding that we are not separate from the land, Mm -hmm. but an integral part of it. And what's healing about that in terms of mental health is when a person deeply and viscerally understands themselves as the land, there's no more struggle. There's no need for ego jockeying. There is no need for power and control games because you realize that your place on the land is as deserved and as natural as a stone or a tree or a plant or an animal. And you just, you have a a peaceful sense of of being in in the right place and belonging. Hmm. And uh, that level of, of peace is very good for one's mental health. And in a spiritual sense, Understanding that we are one with the land, that we are part of creation. And that spiritually, again, it's it's that sense of of being and belonging and um, rightness. And in a physical sense, the elders have always sent people out on the land when they were out of balance. Hmm. If, If you were frenetic or... Uh, grouchy or anything, you would be told to go out in the land, find yourself, find your peace. And I, I like how that, I don't want to think that traditional wisdom needs to be proven by science, but I think it's useful to realize that research is working hand in hand with mm-hmm. traditional knowledge. And the scientific research is showing that connecting with the land, we exchange electrons with the earth, which reduces the free radicals in our bodies that cause cancer. It slows our breathing. Mm-hmm. It slows our heart rate. It slows our brain waves to relax. And it's it's just a marvelous thing that happens. And it's it's so natural. And the the research search is really clearly underlining what the elders have always taught. Hmm.
0: This would seem then to have such implications, obviously, for psychological care psychiatric care and i think of like um um some of the hospital work that i do you know like chaplaincy work going in to visit people in in psychiatric department and others and it seems that so, some of the ways in which people are being treated aren't necessarily doing this but i would imagine that some some of that research you're speaking about is moving in that direction is that fair to say that there's some hope there some change in
3: Absolutely. And an art therapy study found that for indigenous students in colleges and university, that the cortisol level measured in saliva went down by 15% simply by putting nature photographs in the space.
0: Just photographs. Wow.
3: Just photographs. So the implications for that in wow. healthcare is, yeah. is really profound. And um, I also have a connection with spiritual um healthcare work. I was the manager of spiritual health for decade in in northern health and I incorporated it in my work and some of the ways would be perhaps an elder would be too ill to go home
0: yeah
3: so the longing for the land and the connection for the land is really strong so I would at least find photographs so that the person could visually connect to the place that's home
0: that's amazing, just a picture. Yeah, let alone getting somebody outside.
1: I mean, like it, it, it feels to me in some ways a little bit like common sense. Um, I know that uh, when uh, I, I had the privilege of of having uh, Lauren as as one of my instructors for for a course I took last semester, and one of the the things that assignments that you gave us was to. Take some space and actually go and do something creative, and then see what it did to our bodies and how we experienced that. And so, I I went and I made this this wreath out of grapevines from my backyard, and the and I intentionally tried to feel like how I was before I started it, and even just like that like half hour of being outside, being outdoors, using my hands, choosing to do something that that I thought made something that was quite pretty. Um, it really relaxed me. I felt better after that. I felt calmer. I felt less stressed. And so there's part where I'm like, this makes a lot of sense to me that having connection with creation and understanding our relationship with that would would ultimately have huge benefits for mental health as well as other aspects of health. Um, how did you find yourself in this space like how did you how did you get to do this sort of work
3: well it it's something that i have always done and it goes right back to um, growing up in uh, a rural area and spending time walking in um, the forest with my father Mm. and learning about the different plants learning the habits of the animals and just really finding my place that way. So I think the answer is I have never not been. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a real privilege and uh, it's, it's really a gift. Uh, and part of it was from my my English grandmother, who was a full-fledged nurse at 14 years old in 1920. Wow. And that's before medicine as we know it existed. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of use of, of natural um, remedies mm-hmm. and the the wisdom of of the herbalists and people who um, knew what to do uh, because there were treatments for all kinds of things before modern medicine and and some of them were quite effective
0: mm-hmm. so it's it's um as you speak about that kind of the long heritage um the background but it it also makes me feel good that obviously people are listening to you now too, in this particular cultural context, this kind of moment that we're in, um, you teach courses and workshops and tell us about the kinds of things that you teach, what, what you say to people, how you help them.
3: Well, I'm not that much of a talker. Mm. (laughs) There's a lot more doing than talking. And we, of course, before we go out, we talk about safety with bears and we, um, talk about having good sense in the forest. Um, I tell people things like if the wind is in your face, in your face, the bear in front of you won't know you were there. (laughs) So just some, some safety things. And um, we talk about that reciprocal relationship and different traditions have different ways of acknowledging that reciprocity, but just your, your attitude of um, affection and Mm. Caring about the plant that you're working with um, would, would be one way of that reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. Most of us have the incredible gift of having an experience of love. And we know how sustaining that is. And when we love the land, we sustain the land also. And my not-so-secret agenda in these courses is to help people fall in love with the land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in the courses, we'll talk about reciprocity, but then we demonstrate it. In Indigenous culture, there's all different ways. Uh, what is appropriate to this location is an exchange, perhaps, a, um, by watering a plant when you are there, or um, maybe by, by leaving some plant medicine. Well, in the tradition that I'm from, it's the laying down of tobacco. Okay. But it's as, as much the heart behind the gesture of reciprocity as it is what you actually do. And I have heard elders say that if you have nothing, leave a part of your sandwich for an animal to eat. Mm. Um, take one of your hairs and leave it on the ground. And it's, it's that nature of reciprocity and, and appreciation that is, is as important as what you actually do. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's our beginning. is is safety and and teaching ethical wildcrafting. So um, it depends a lot on the plant. If you are harvesting dandelions, thinking about the harvest is is not quite so crucial. If you're harvesting plantain, which grows everywhere between the cracks in the sidewalk, and I found it at Vancouver School of Theology when I was there, Um, perhaps yarrow, a number of plants that are very abundant, and perhaps we could even consider them nuisance weeds although i i don't think that anything <laughs> truly is right. in fact when i weed my garden um i'm col- collecting medicinal plants at the same time so those ones we don't need to worry so much about but something that has a very um delicate ecosystem like arnica if we were to go and to collect arnica ethical wildcrafters leave the root even though it's a very good medicine because the, the root system takes a long time to develop. And if we damage that root, root system, there will be no more arnica for anyone to har- harvest. So a good rule of thumb, if you're not sure, is to harvest one-tenth of what you see.
0: The, at the beginning, when you were mentioning, um, speaking about land-based healing and wellness, like no more struggle what it does for the ego and jockeying and when you talk about giving space for people to fall in love with the land it seems to me kind of the opposite of productivity or or um you know and you're teaching this and of course our so many models of our teaching are you know what's what's going to be on the exam right what's the grade uh, you can't you can't put on the exam like did you fall in love with the land right so is it is it accurate to say that it's this kind of thing happens best if you drop that sense of like, I have to achieve this thing. Like it, it is kind of a laying down of things that opens up this possibility. Or do you see people that are engaging and like trying to get it all right?
3: And April, this, this next statement may sound familiar to you. Todd, what if the way you are and your sense of being is enough? And we have this connection with the land that we're born into, and I had a a student that I was supervising, and she was saying, well, how do I know where to pick? I don't know where to pick. And I said, ask the plant. Mm -hmm. And she went into a meditative moment and was so excited because she actually saw part of the plant light up that was willing to be taken and these incredibly magical things happen when we are, are out there if we are open to them. Hmm. And I can also assure you that the courses that we've developed meet the academic standards <laughs> and are academically rigorous. Well played.
1: Well done, Lauren. Yes. No, I, I would imagine that it would For be it would be difficult to to try to quantify or that some of these things that yes you need to fit into these these certain academic forms in order to have accreditation and all those sorts of stuff but it does it does feel very much like that's is difficult to grade
3: <laughs> that sort of thing um, not really if if we consider it from a mastery level mm. and if the purpose of well the first course the purpose the academic one we've developed but i'll, I'll return back to the um wellness workshops, but in the academic courses, we've developed, it's a measure of wellness that is the major assignment.
1: Okay, could you could you expand that a little bit for us?
3: Well, what we spend time doing is learning ways of being well. So we do art, we do um, indigenized yoga and we do plant gathering and all of these things are in the service of the connection to the land which is our primary source of healing for all human beings. Mm-hmm. So we, we spend time learning new ways and perhaps um, revisiting some ones that people know already, and we develop a wellness plan. So the course is, is taught Thursday evening, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for the first half. And we help people to develop a wellness plan in the four areas of wellness, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual.
1: Hmm.
3: And then for the month between the first weekend and the second weekend, students must implement that plan. Hmm. Ah. And keep a, a short daily journal, which is submitted weekly, on progress, um, on barriers, on um, needing to change things to fit themselves a little better. So... Deeply going into that exercise is how one is evaluated.
0: Hmm.
3: Not that if a person says they're going to run five miles and only run um, one, (laughs) that there's a demerit for that. But understanding things like maybe I set the goal too high. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe I can't do it seven days a week. Maybe three is more realistic. And that process is so important to our, our wellness as Um, human beings as professionals. And one of the reasons I got into this is because in all the areas that I've worked in my life, which is considerable at this age, I noticed that people are unwell Mm -hmm. and we have a very high turnover rate in the helping professions. So another motivator is how can we have curriculum that will help healthcare workers, teachers, counselors, human service workers, stay well in their practice so if we could introduce this in year one and year two yeah then that's a great service to the students but also to the people they serve yeah I mean we've all encountered professionals who are not well that cause damage so what if we helped people come up with ways to be well from the very beginning
1: Hmm. I think that's a great question um I I think that yeah, there, there's a lot to be learned. And if you can, yeah, set set a good framework from the beginning, there's less correction or damage to recover from later. Or, I, I think... Or burnout. Yeah, or, yeah, no, I think that makes oh. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, if
3: we practice it for a month, it becomes that potentially a lifelong habit. Mm-hmm. Offer so for that opportunity for people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask you what some of the challenges that you've, that you've come up against with, with this understanding, it seems, it seems to me like I can think of some obvious ones from like, um, a Western kind of philosophical understanding there's, but also even just things like, like climate change and, and geography, I think of some of the, the urban kind of rural, like there, there are people who don't have as much access to, to large parts of nature what sort of things do you kind of end up having to to overcome in in your um, in your teaching and in in these courses that that you run and facilitate?
3: I think I'm surprised by how little difficulty there is. Oh, that's
1: really encouraging to hear. Yeah.
3: And I I believe it's because maybe it's been enhanced by this pandemic, mm-hmm. but we have a, a longing for connection. And we know something is not right and out of balance with the predominant society in, in North America. Hmm. And we are, are longing for meaning and depth and significance. Hmm. And our connection with our spirituality and with creation helps to um, meet some of those needs. There there has, have been some really funny ones.
1: Oh, great. Let's hear those.
3: Well course has to run during the growing season outdoors. And one of the challenges we ran into was we wanted to do the first weekend for the course, first weekend of May and the second weekend, the second um, weekend or the first weekend of June. And then the level two course, beginning of July and beginning of August. Okay. It didn't fit very well with the academic semester. (laughs) And Someone said, well, can't you start it at this time? And I said, no, we can't. The plants aren't available yet. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's just this um you have to wait practicality for that doesn't yeah. necessarily fit in academic life. But I, I must say that um our, our dean that covers the academic programs is has been most helpful, <laughs> most supportive, and, and things are coming along. Oh
0: that's so great.
1: Oh, that's good. So as as we're, we're talking here, I mean, listeners can't see how much you're smiling, um, but I they mean, I would like, I, I think they can, yeah. but in case you didn't, Lauren has a huge smile over her face for most of this. It's lovely to see, actually, I, I, I genuinely get the sense that you get so much joy and fulfillment from your work. Like, it, it it's really lovely to, to hear, and what sort of things... Like, first of all, am I getting that sense correct? I I feel like I am. But what sort of things do you find bring you joy in your work?
3: I am absolutely blessed that at this point in my life that all of my work is joy.
1: Oh, that's great.
3: And it's, um, I'm working in an incredibly supportive environment here at the college. And um, we are a very creative campus and we primarily have indigenous students. And so it's, it's a good fit here. And um, I just wanted to return to a previous um, question, tell you a little bit more about what we do in the mm-hmm. courses. We go out on the land and we have six or eight sessions to the workshops, the non-academic courses. And for most of those, we go outside. And just being outdoors and gathering things, being in that respectful, reciprocal relationship it's healing, and it, it just puts a person in, in balance. And what's lovely is that as we gather plants, the attitude that we gather them with matters. And when we come back and we start preparing the plant medicines, there is a lot of laughter and joy. And that's very important because we're instilling that kind of energy in, in what we're creating and what we're making. We're working with that plant. We're, as we work, we think about different people we know who need healing and Mm -hmm. we are prayerful and joyful and, and we prepare those medicines. And so for us, there's the medicinal qualities of the plant. There is that difficult to define thing about the energy that we infused the medicine with, but it also gives us remembrance of gathering and that puts us into a peaceful state, and we remember with joy when we use that plant medicine. But it's it's so important that we are generous. And uh, the college assumes no liability for um, the use of the medicine or distributing it <laughs> to anyone. But we we make quite a lot so that that people have it when they leave. Wow,
0: that's so. How does someone get into the program? How, Someone hears you, and they're like, oh, this sounds fantastic. How do how do the students find you?
3: Well, we just put the word out in the community, and and so far we've had all of our courses full with a waiting list. Wow. We, we ran four workshops, in um, three in Port St. James and one in Vanderhoof last year, yeah. and they were full.
1: That's got to feel encouraging, knowing that people are genuinely really connecting with what what you're teaching, that they're seeing you, the importance that you clearly see in this work and that they're, they're actually learning and, and getting so much from these programs that you're running.
3: I mean, and bringing so much, mm-hmm. everybody who mm-hmm. comes has, has stories and experiences with the plants. And mm-hmm. you know, we create a, a classroom of, of shared wisdom rather than the old sage on the stage, a model so that Everyone's input is, is appreciated and valued. And beautiful things happen that you couldn't engineer. We were yeah. out um, gathering Devil's Club, and that is a very, very secret plant in northern BC. Um, it's, it's hard to harvest, and anyone who's fallen into a patch of um, Devil's Club knows about that. It's got spines on it. So we go out and, and we ask permission from the plant to gather it. We gather it reverently. We take the spines off it with the back of our, our um, knives and then take it back to separate the inner and outer bark and then continue preparing it. But when we went to gather, a woman took a ribbon skirt out of her backpack and she put it on because she wanted to acknowledge how sacred what we were doing was and I suggested that we take a moment of silence to appreciate in our own tradition hmm. the spiritual gift that this plant is to us. And at the conclusion of that, a local woman asked if she could pray in Delka, the local language. I still get goosebumps even talking about it. But we create an environment where these things happen. Hmm. And uh, it is so sacred and so lovely, and it is everyone's contributions. And I I learned so much from the participants. And I I need to mention that in the beginning, I um, had asked an elder to come and to talk about traditions of the land here, because I'm not from here. And it's so important that um, we have that local knowledge, not just the, um, the teacher from the college
0: right.
3: and after a few minutes I, I knew that we needed to find a way to have um, Elder Clara co-facilitate this course and I'm absolutely blessed that she is willing to do that and has been part of um, the next two courses last year and the course coming up mm-hmm. and it is a deep commitment of mine and it is written into the course that a local, locally recognized indigenous elder must be part mm. of the course, whether it's co-facilitating all classes or working in consultation with the person who's teaching the course. Mm. Um, it's not always, always possible to do both. But that consultation and facilitation is so central to the honoring of a place. Mm. So, so, so you,
0: you were blessed to do that right from the beginning, is what you're saying?
3: Well, it was the second course. Yeah, okay. Mm
0: -hmm. Did you notice a difference between one and two?
3: Well, I was fortunate that um, Elder Clara had decided to take the course for the first one. (laughs) That's a big (laughs) promotion. Oh, wow, okay. (laughs) She really (laughs) didn't mean to do, but it was (laughs) wonderful that she was there. Such a a beautiful and and humble and and loving woman. We're just so fortunate that she she does this with, with me.
0: W- when you're speaking about things like this, it it one of the things that comes up in my mind is the the longing for kind of space, the spaciousness of the land, the kind of, and then earlier you referenced just in psychiatric care, just being able to show a, f- a, a photograph can have such positive effect. What kind of things in your own mind, in terms of translating some of this to an urban mm-hmm. environment? Um, like, what does land-based healing mean for someone who lives in, um, you know, a condo in Yaletown?
3: Well, I can tell you what it meant for me attending Vancouver School of Theology mm-hmm. on campus. That time that I didn't understand ways to stay connected, and I got really ill.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I've given a lot of thought because it is, is my hope to offer this course um, collaboratively with a local elder in in many places. Mm-hmm. There, there are wild spaces. Um, and I, I, I did find them towards the end of my program at, at Vancouver School of Theology. I discovered in the early morning that wreck beach is empty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> might be a different experience later near in the VST. day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I would anchor myself on the dandelion that was growing between the cracks.
2: Hmm. Um,
3: Any undeveloped lot in the city Mm. Uh, It's just a plethora of medicinal plants there's actually an amazing book called the anarchist herbal and it was written for people that may um be in prisons where Mm. good medical care is not available all over the world Mm. and it's it's on what plants are readily available even in a Mm. concrete prison yard
0: wow that's so encouraging to hear, right? Because I think that that it is possible. Someone listening, hearing the kinds of things you're speaking about in in the environment away from the city, um, that oh, I guess it's going to take that. And just to hear you saying, no, nope, there's there are there are wild spaces.
3: Yeah, there are. Sometimes we have to look for them. And mm. my goodness, we have such incredible natural plants.
0: Yeah. Well, mm. so
3: I'm. UNBC, for example, um, David Thompson Garden Society is developing a a naturalized garden there, and I think that we need to see more of this happening in um, academic and commercial spaces Mm -hmm. where we're we're growing um, plants indigenous to the area. Yeah. 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 Mind you, I'm a real lover of lavender, and that's not indigenous (laughs) to North America.
1: I, I do feel like that—that that is kind to, 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 to point out the fairness. I also do love lavender. I didn't know it wasn't, you know, native to BC. That makes me a little sad. I'm still going to enjoy it, I think.
3: Yes, and you know, there's good medicinal uses for a lot of plants, but I think that we also need to have an honoring of, of what is is indigenous to Canada. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I I love the way that you're you're framing this as as relationship, and I think for for myself, like I, I I grew up in admittedly a a very Western understanding and philosophy and worldview. And so having a concept of, of land as, as sentient, as, as relationship, as something to be in relationship with is, is pretty new for me. Um, and it, it reframes a lot of stuff. And I think that 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 can be very helpful. Um, but what are some first sort of steps that, that you've, you've encountered when you've, when you've had somebody who maybe, you know, it isn't used to that sort of relationship with the land? What are some of the first steps that people can take to, towards that? So
0: like
2: changing their mind. Yeah, changing their like,
1: like I, I would imagine that we probably have some people listening to this that, that don't kind of even know where to start. And they go, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to go and move into, you know, somewhere rural BC. I'm not going to like, but how, how can they start?
3: I think it starts with cult- cultivating a sense of wonder and curiosity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And I derived, you know, speaking of a, a city that's where you are, um, in the lower mainland, there are so many wild spaces mm-hmm. and we are so blessed in Canada. We've always considered that green spaces are important to well-being. And behind every cultivated area in a park, there's a patch of weeds.
1: <laughs> Is that where you tend towards?
3: Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick answer. <laughs> but even um, for those that are fortunate enough to um, have a, a balcony or maybe even a yard, hmm it's amazing yeah. to me how, how resilient wild, wild
1: yeah. plants are. Yeah. I mean, what, what I hear you're kind of saying is it's like you, you need to just pay attention. If you look for it, you're talking about like finding weeds and cracks of sidewalks and that sort of stuff. Like it, even in probably most of the urban places in, in Canada, at least, there, there's something growing somewhere. <laughs>
0: I'm just thinking about how people can tend to do landscaping right? Like what people think of as the perfect backyard for those who have houses or something, right? Or live in a house that there's so much cultivation now. It, it, it's extreme, right? You've, some people have like a, a whole kitchen in, in their backyard, right? And then every, every patch is kind of measured and things are... Whereas then I think of a couple of spaces that are in my mind right now. One's right close to here. We're in North Vancouver and there's a highway off-ramp so it's one of those circular. Oh, kind like of the cloverleaf. Right? Yeah, and in the middle, there's nothing, right? It's it's just it's just there's nothing. It's green space, <laughs> but <laughs> for er, uh, all my time growing up as a kid, that was that was mowed. It was perfectly like it was just grass. You know what I mean? Nobody was ever on it. You couldn't get on that no. space. It's and then they let it grow, and just it just grew. And The same thing um, down by um, near Lost Lagoon, in between Lost Lagoon in Stanley mm-hmm. Park and. Um, what is it second beach so and there's that there's that huge patch of land that has like a little english bridge over over a creek and it's got and all my growing up that was mowed and kept perfectly like a little english Mm -hmm. garden and that kind of perfectly and then a few years ago they let it grow and marshes developed and you know all this kind of whole Mm -hmm. so yeah it strikes me that you're not necessarily uh, driven towards those, like, highly managed spaces.
1: Manicured and...
3: Well, I can appreciate them. And, can. and one that immediately comes to mind is um, the Rose Garden at, at UBC and also yeah. the one at Stanley Park. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, and the one in Victoria by the Empress. Yep. Those are, are truly beautiful. beautiful. And roses are amazing medicinal plants as well. <laughs> That's such a great answer.
1: <laughs> no, I love that. My kids, my kids, when they found out that rose petals were edible, started going around. Like we're, we're very fortunate that at this moment we we live in like a nearly one hundred year old house that my husband's grandparents originally owned, and so there's like some very old rose bushes there. And so yeah, no, when they found out that roses were edible, those then became. Can we go out and pick some they rose petals? old yes. roses. Yes, all the time. I'm like, well, I think it's okay. Sure.
3: The city, we have to really watch for pesticide spraying.
1: Ah, so. uh, yeah, no, these ones are ones in my yard. So, oh, good. Yes, my very overgrown yard. No, but yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll take it as like I, I think this would be maybe more the way that, that Lauren is talking to us. Like I, I've let it go a little more more feral, wild, <laughs> natural. That's what we'll yeah. call it,
3: and better better for the bees.
1: I hope so. I mean, our our backyard is. <sighs> And when you, when you talk about like connection with the land and stuff like that, um, while, while I, I am not indigenous nor would I, I don't, I don't think I fully appreciate and understand the relationship with the land that, that I have, I've heard indigenous people, people speak of. I'm very appreciative of it. I I don't think that I have the same connection. Um, and, and I, I want to learn more, but even the amount of history that is in my, backyard cuz mm. my my husband's grandparents got the house when it was first built close to 100 years ago and then my mother-in-law grew up in that house and then we ended up moving in when his his grandmother went into a care facility and it got sold to a developer but they haven't developed yet so we're living there but there was part particularly with that one assignment when i was making the 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 hmm. wreath out of the grapevines I go, these, these are grapes that my children's great great grandparents planted. And mm. I I see that and it gives me, I think, some sort of insight into going what what the connection to land can be. Um and I, I mm. love how you talk about reciprocity and I love how you talk about generous, like it's it's all so positive and it's also it's so relational and and there is part where there is so much, there's so much common sense to it. There's so much, there's so much beauty to it, and I, it it reminds me of uh, Todd. You're going to have to correct my quote here. Is it Simone Wheel who talks about like that? Yeah, the attention. Attention, um, at she its says, highest attention level. Attention
0: taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. Yeah, and, and she says it presupposes faith and love, which is a little I think bit about it, it, falling it, in it love yeah, with the land.
1: Exactly. Like to me, that that's what it talks. About And there's part where we're talking about how the land is sacred and how the plants are sacred and there's and that you have to care and you have to have attention. And I think I think it's really beautiful and. And I'm so encouraged that that you are. Your classes are full and there's interest and there's there's people who are. Are relearning some of these things. I, I think that that's that's really encouraging for me to know that that there seems like there's so much hope going forward with that.
0: Lauren, um, I'm thinking of um, when Allison shares that story about the grapes, the grapevines. I think of your um, three things: um, the medic- medicinal qualities of a plant, the energy in- infused in this remembrance of gathering. That um, the remembrance of gathering, at, like workshops and classes you have, but that remembrance over time with those other people. And I'm assuming, Alison, I'm thinking of how I would feel if, in that context, that kind of takes the edge off the day as well <laughs> too, right? When you're, you know, you're realizing, oh, grandparents, great-grandparents, all
3: that, and then just helps, you can see how yeah. that helps. That sense of re- wrenching that you may feel about leaving that space, <sighs> that is a, a good insight into how many Indigenous people um, communities have been pushed off ancestral lands and Vine Jr. says that in the ancestral territories that the top several inches of the soil is bones of our ancestors
1: Yeah, I think there's part where we're not coming from an indigenous worldview and, and knowledge and, and not many like indigenous relationships like I, I did not have any sort of real framework for that before I I moved into this house and and lived here and thinking about the house being developed. Like, I'm actually kind of on the verge (laughs) of tears because, like, I can only imagine how much more and how much more painful that is for for Indigenous peoples with their traditional lands. Um, And... I feel like a moment of confession like I I didn't know I Hmm. I didn't understand I didn't have a context it just felt like dirt to me before and it doesn't now Hmm. um and I hope that that people can can begin to to have some sort of compassion and and understanding that even though land may just feel like dirt for them, that that's not actually how it feels mm. for everybody. And that's not, that's not what it means when you are in relationship with the land.
0: Have you seen any progress in that, Lauren? Do you think people are seeing differently?
3: Well, we're seeing a progression from the back to the land movement in the 1960s and 70s until now. I think it's it's continued with mm. with we um, average folks, mm-hmm. people that um, lead ordinary modest lives. I, we're hardwired for it. In that dirt that you talk about, are microbes that have antidepressant qualities.
0: Yeah.
3: When we put our hands in the earth, it lifts our moods. The wonder of creation, the way that Creator God Allah whatever language we use for the, the sacred and the holy, it's being engineered this way for us. Mm-hmm. Well put.
1: I think that's beautiful. Um, and and I think it's important to, to have conversations about this and to have education about this and an understanding realized about this. And so I'm very grateful for people like you, Lauren, who are actively working in, in this space and who are teaching and, and listening. Like, I, I feel like it, it's, it's such a different context and understanding of a workshop or courses that, that you talk about the reciprocity and how you learn from the people in your class and how they learn from you and that, that circle that is, that is formed. And it, it's, it's beautiful. And I'm really appreciative that there are people like you who are doing this work and who, uh, like there's part where I know I've said it several times that it feels kind of like common sense, but you talk about the studies that are being done that are kind of proving some of these things that you've always felt have been true and you haven't necessarily had the empirical scientific kind of evidence for, but now some of those things are are coming out. And I'm hoping that that might be enough to kind of tip some people over a little bit that that have been skeptical or unsure of stuff I was wondering as as we look to to begin kind of closing up the I know that we, we've talked several times about how much joy you seem to have with your work and and I have I know we've talked about the things that you find hopeful but at this moment right now what sort of things are giving you hope
3: well, there's this miracle we could take for, for granted, which is the turn of the seasons.
0: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. But isn't it, isn't it amazing, the faithfulness of, of the sacred, faithfulness of the divine to us, that we can count on the turn of the seasons, mm-hmm. uh, the season of, of rest and darkness and cold. And we know with absolute certainty that we can count on creation, we can count on mm-hmm. the sacred, to turn that season into spring. So that when we really understand that, then when we're having difficult times, perhaps with the pandemic or personally in our own lives, that we know that this is perhaps a season of fall or winter. And we know with certainty that spring and summer come again. Mm -hmm. And the generosity of, of indigenous people is another thing that gives me joy and hope. I'm a relative newcomer here. And I'm I'm so grateful for um, Elder Clara who gives her wisdom, and hmm. I I believe what the elders tell me because I have seen science running to catch up. Yes, many yes. times or, like you know it it being not honored. Patience, the generosity, the forgiveness.
1: Yeah,
3: Indigenous people is, yes. is a source of, of comfort and joy and peace yeah. to me. And one of those non status Indigenous people mm. without standing in any particular community. So grateful for the generosity of Indigenous people to. Mm. Well put. And even with my marginal Indigeneity, to be welcomed as Indigenous.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your generosity. It's yes. been great meeting you. I know Alison has met you previously and same thing. So many, so many points of encouragement, but uh, b- bigger than that, a call to, mm-hmm. to listen. And uh, so thank you to you, to Elder Clara, to all those who inform, you know, who you are and what you do and uh, we'll continue to follow that. And I know Alison, you continue to have contact as well. So, mm-hmm. we'll...
1: And good luck with your, your dissertation as you're working on it this year. <laughs> yeah
3: fantastic I'm enjoying it and thank you so much for inviting me thank you okay. thanks
0: Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday the podcast is a production of Reflector Project hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams Cupboard Master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell production and social media by Amanda Miner for past episodes and other content visit rectorscupboard.ca thanks for listening